If you're here for the first time again, we welcome you. Here and those online, we welcome you here this morning. And, uh, and uh, we're going to be picking back up where we left off a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, in 1 John chapter 5. We'll be taking verses 1 through 13 today. And, uh, and we'll just see what the Lord has for us this morning as we open up your word. Father, again, as we do open, we know apart, we can open up the Bible, yes, we can open up our apps, yes, we can do all these things, but apart from the Holy Spirit moving and teaching us this, this truth, we will not understand these words. It will be just words on pages. So we need you, Holy Spirit, right now to just open our ears are open, our hearts are softened, I pray, as we worshiped you in song. Now, may your Holy Spirit just move in a mighty way in this place and speak to the hearts of your people. As we teach and bring clarity, Lord, may it be your clarity. Let only things that come out of my mouth be from you. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, that does not know you personally, have not completely surrendered, has not surrendered their life to you, I pray today's the day of their salvation, they will be saved. That they would understand there's a way to have all their sins, past, present, future, to be forgiven because of your finished work on that cross. And you offer the free gift of salvation to all. And I pray if they have not received that gift of salvation from you today, they'll hear you speak to their hearts and they will receive and be born again, regenerated, and have eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is where I better get a drink of water. <clears throat> Everyone here has some kind of a witness that they portray to others. They all have a testimony. You all have a testimony of something that has happened in your life and in through your life. Many will be stuck in that witness or that testimony of their past. They're not able to move on from their past. They're still stuck there. They're still replaying their past. Or maybe it's a present situation you're in. For some, believe it or not, if there's some are... They're so fearful of the future that they're paralyzed today because they can't see what is going to happen in their life. They want it played out. Every moment of their life, every age, they dream of what their life will be like at different stages of their life. Today we're going to see the witness and testimony of one we should be focused upon because it's a, a surety for us. It's not a hope for, want to be, and oh, I wish I could change my past life kind of moments. This is the surety that we have in the witness and testimony of our Lord. Now in chapters 1 and 2, we saw John write about what it was like as a believer, how we're to be walking in God's light. That as a believer, you're no longer living in darkness. You're not walking in darkness. You're not choosing to walk in darkness. Now, many of us never thought we were walking in darkness. We just thought we were just stumbling through life. And like everyone else was there because everyone you knew was in darkness too. So you just felt at home anyway. 
But as a child of God, we're not to walk in darkness anymore. We're to walk in the light, the light that he lights in front of us. He makes our paths very straight. He makes it lit. We know exactly what we need, how to live our lives as pleasing to God, according to the word of God. Then we saw in chapters 3 and 4, he discussed living this life that God has given you, living in God's love. Because many of us have lived in a life of of hatred and and ugliness and, and resentment and all kind of bitterness and all kinds of things. And everyone, again, you have a witness, you have a testimony of what your life has been like. I, I understand that. We all have that. But God says, as a believer now, you live in God's love. You must and I must walk in his love because he has so much love for you. He's demonstrated that love for you on the cross. He died for you to make a way for you to have your sins forgiven. And because of his love, we can now love others. He's called us to love other people, to love him and to love others. That's, That's what he's called us to do now as a child of God. Bitterness has got to go. Unforgiveness has got to go. That is not a part of God's children's life. Unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment and hatred, that, that, that's darkness. That is no longer who you are as a child of God. And it's got to go, he says. Or it's just going to eat you alive. It's just going to ruin your life as a child of God. You'll never grow spiritually. If you're always living in the past, you'll never grow spiritually in the future. If you're not going to live by his love for you and believe that he loves you and believe that he can empower you to love other people, especially God's people, your brothers and sisters in the Lord, then you must move on or you're not going to grow spiritually. You may grow intellectually because you're still reading, but that does not mean you're actually growing and maturing in your faith. Today we see the final chapter or the final part of the section of this epistle, the last part here, and he's going to talk about the experiencing God's life because you can have a new life. That is our hope and our promise. We can have a new life. We do not have to live the life that is just was destroyed for many. The testimony and the, the witness of the things that have gone in our lives. We do not have to live like that. We can live a life that is pleasing to God. That's fulfilling to, for God. Knowing that we have a future ahead of us which is in heaven because this is not our home. The question, all of these, those three things that he's talking about and especially today. Do you believe these things? As a child of God, do you believe We see here being born of God is to transform me because we will see here in chapter 5 Christian certainties that we have that he gives us in the scriptures. We'll see two of the five today, which we can build our lives with confidence upon. You want that solid foundation in your life to help you to live a life that is pleasing and, and, and stable? Because believe it or not, many people around this world today are unstable people. Have you figured that out yet? Now, I sit here. I've been in the medical world for a long time. I I know what goes on in the medical world. I know more than I probably wanted to know. There are more drugs to help people, and there are more programs and more of this and more massage therapists in the world to help you relax. Why is everyone coming unglued? 
I can tell you why. Because the darkness is coming over this land and people are not on the solid foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That is why. And you're sitting there going, Pastor, I, I'm struggling with these anxieties and all these kinds of things, but I'm a believer. I know. I know. It can still plague you as a believer if you do not fully just keep your mind focused upon the Lord. You will go squirrely. We all can go squirrely. You take your eyes off the Lord, you're, you're in trouble. Because if you take your eyes off the Lord, you're going to put it on this world or yourself. You're going to self-implode you now. Or others and things and circumstances. These things can cause us to become unstable if we do not understand what the word of God promises us as a child of God and believe it and live it. So that's why we come here and we gather, regardless of you, how you feel, to come and to be encouraged by the word of God to know what God has for you and I. We must understand these things and apply them. Don't just know them. Just don't talk about it. You must walk it. You must do it. Don't just be hearers of the word, James says, but be doers of the word. So we start here in 1 John 5. Verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, Christ means Messiah. He is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. So John starts here, continues in his letter, really what I should say. God has often mentioned being born of God. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 7. He's sprinkled it throughout his letter about you being born of God. A born-again experience, a regeneration that takes place in a person's life. Going from darkness to light, once being blind, now you can see. This is a transformation-changed life. If you're really born again, you have a changed life. You don't get Jesus and then continue to live in your dark life. That is not a changed man. That is a changed woman. Do not try to convince me that you're born again. Because there is a changed life. Here he tells us how one is born of God. Right there. For, for those of anyone's listening here online or right here, how do I get saved? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah that has been promised, the Savior of the world. Do you believe he is the Savior of the world? This means you believing that Jesus is your Messiah, your Savior. Not just the Messiah in generic or a broad religious sense that many people have. Many religions will say, oh yes, I know Jesus. But do you believe he personally is your Messiah, your Savior? Do you want him to save you? Do you want him to change and forgive you? John's greatest emphasis has been on love throughout his letter, but he never wants anyone to believe that you can earn God's love. That's a very religiosity. That's a very religious trap for many people. I'll have to do, do, do for God. 
do, 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 do this, do that, love this, love that. I'm going to do all these things for God because you're trying to earn God's love. That is not how it works in the scriptures. That's legal. That's religiosity. Legalism. No, you love God because he first what? Loved you. And because of that love he has for you and demonstrated, you cannot but naturally respond in loving back to him. It's because you have this new nature, a spiritual nature that's alive, and you can't but naturally respond. How do you respond? By worshiping him. By worshiping him. Talking to him. And yes, obedience to what God's going to call you to because he has a plan, a purpose for your life. So we all, John's not talking about some intellectual agreement to know Jesus. Why? Because even demons know who Jesus is, James 2.19. He's saying he, he means to put a complete trust in and reliance on Jesus as Messiah. That's what he's calling you to do. He's asking you to trust in and reliance on Jesus Messiah for your life. To have this witness and testimony of your life and how you live your life. That you believe Jesus is the Christ. John makes it clear. We must believe Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that today? There are many of this new age type of religion that goes on. This new age type of thinking who believe Jesus only had the Christ spirit poured out upon him. Do you understand when you think that when he, Jesus got here and the Holy Spirit came down upon him at the baptism, that the Christ spirit came upon him at that point? Do you believe when he was on the cross and before he died, the spirit of Christ left him and then he died? That is a spirit of Antichrist when you think that. That is a spirit of Antichrist. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man from the beginning to the all and still today. He has not changed. There is no Christ spirit coming upon him and leaving him. He is the Messiah. And so many other religions, Confucius believed the fact that Christ's spirit came upon him. Muhammad, Buddha, and even certain other modern types of Jesus followers today. But we would never say in our language because of the scripture, we never say Jesus has the Christ. No, 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 no. That's anti-Christian. Jesus is the Christ. You must have that as your foundation and understanding. Jesus is Christ. It's who he is. Always been. The name above all names. And they are the name and the title. Jesus Christ, the name and the title of the one and the same divine person. That has to be foundational, my brothers and sisters, because many religions teach opposite of that. When you smell it and you hear it, you must immediately reject it. It's a, a spirit of Antichrist. 
Everyone who loves him, he says here, who begot also loves him who is, who is begotten of him. Being born of God also has two effects when that happens. When you are born again, there's two effects. It assumes that we will love God, right here, him who begot us, whom, who has, who's brought us into the family of God. Of course, we're going to love him. But because we are born again in his family, but it is also assumed that we will love others in the faith as well. We will love others who are begotten of him as well. He, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our common ground as believers. Our, our relationship between each other of humanity, especially, but especially as believers, is based on the fact that God loves you and you love him. And that he loves others and they love him. And that we're part of the same family and the family unity that we have here at Calvary Chapel, North Country, and across the world with our brothers and sisters, that unity is not based upon anything else than our love for God and the love for one another. Because we have the same Savior. It's not based on race. It's not based on color of the skin. It's not based on your economics. It's not based on the state you live in. It's not based on your political statements. It is not based on your work or what you do or don't do. Do you understand that? Anyone who says that your religion and your relationship and I can fellowship with you because we're in the certain same denomination or the same race or the same color or same this is a spirit of the Antichrist. I cannot emphasize that enough because that is what the enemy is dividing and conquering this, the, 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 the body of Christ is based on those things. So when you hear these things, when you see these things, you know you're dealing with the spirit of the Antichrist. Because it should not be. The scripture is very clear. We have unity in the body of Christ because of the love of God and the love for each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Do you understand these things? I know you do. But still today, many people don't. Because they're wrapped up in the world or their flesh really has a stronghold because they're still holding on to things of the past or the present or the fears of the future. What's your witness? Who do you believe? Do you believe God or do you believe your own thinking or the things of this world? What is your witness? What is your testimony, my brothers and sisters? May it be the love of God. <laughs> Let people look at you and go, man, they're really tight. Why do they seem to be really tight? Because they love each other. Why do they love each other? Because they love the same Savior. It's not complicated. My five-year-old understands these things. Why can't the 55 understand these things? Why can't the 25 understand these things? Why can't they understand because you choose not to believe the word of God. You're not mature as you think you are. You have intellect, but no application. There's no change of life in that. You need 
All of us need to continue to be on guard and watch what the truth of God says and to make sure we apply it by the Spirit of God. He's, he's sitting there and he's saying, you must have love for one another. If these things mean more to us than anything other than the fact that this is what God's called, the, 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 our Lordship of Jesus Christ has called us to love him and to love one another. It's like, it's like parents, right? If you've been a parent, you understand these things. Parents are frustrated and can even get to a point of disgust. When they see their children fighting among themselves and hating one another, it appears they seems they hate one another as brothers and sibling rivalries. How must God feel when he sees his children fighting among themselves? If you're a parent, you understand that. <laughs> Those kids are going to love each other one day. I know they're siblings and they're fighting and they're scrabbling over who, but... One day, they're going to love each other. We're going to keep pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. They're going to love one another. They're going to be brothers and sisters. They're going to love each other. The brothers are going to love each other. They're not going to kill each other. I know mothers. It's not easy to be a mother. Motherhood is tough, especially with boys. Oh, Lord, please don't let them kill each other. I know my mother must. I'm surprised she's, she made it to the 80s with three boys. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I, I, it's very good verse, uh, two verses here because just as much as our love for the people of God reflects what? It reflects our love for God. So when someone says, you see them it's always pushing away, and I don't want to get around God's people. They're crazy. They're just weird. You know, I'm not going to... I thought you were a child of God. I am. But I don't get around people. I mean, I don't, I'm, just, I'm not antisocial or anything. But I just, I just... There's just weirdness. The scripture, very clear here, you, you're reflecting your true love of God. You may not know that, but now you do, because this verse is just... I just read them to you. I know that hurt, didn't it? If you don't love God's people, it's a reflection of how much really you really love God. That's what John is saying here. And in keeping your, his commandments. God commands us to what? To love him and love others. Two great commandments. When our love and obedience for God grows cold, we do not only harm ourselves, we harm our brothers and sisters around us. It always affects other people. The damage is done. At the very least, because we become a drain on the spiritual growth of God's people when we do not love them. Well, that's their problem. No, no. You made it a problem for them. They're trying to love you, but you're not loving them because you think more highly of yourself. The Bible warns us of not to look, think more highly of ourselves. Does it not? You're supposed to die of self and live for God and live for others. You're not to, die, you're not to live for yourself. And so when we see these things, we understand it will affect, it will drain the spiritual growth of God's people. Some people, you, you, you just have to understand that 
they're not there yet. They're growing, and we want to encourage them to grow and, and continue to grow in their, uh, their, their love for God, and eventually it will bear the fruit of the love for others as well. And we're willing to go through that in your family and in the church family. Why? Because it's so important to be patient, steadfast, long-suffering for people to grow in their faith. As a non-believer, don't expect that. As a non-believer at work, or even in your family and friends, don't expect love. They don't have the capacity to love. Only to limit it. Only based on certain circumstances can they love you. Because they do not have the Spirit of God to actually produce the fruit of love that goes beyond the, just the temporary and surface. But an unconditional type love. When our love and obedience for God grows, then not only will you grow spiritually, but others around you will also benefit and grow spiritually from that. It's a beautiful thing. The one who says he loves God, yet walks in a lifestyle of, of conscious disobedience toward the word of God, is like a believer who says he walks in fellowship with God, yet walks in darkness. We see that John warned us in chapter 1, verse 6. And if you're doing that, if you say you're a God and you say you're walking there, but you're actually behind the scenes secretly living another life, you're calling God a liar. You've been deceived. And so that you shouldn't take that lightly because John, in the words for, uh, of Jesus, in his, in his, must have been in his mind when he wrote this. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. God's commandment to love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourselves. That's not hard to discern. Nor is it hard to do when you have the power of God empowering you to do it. It only is hard to do and actually apply it if you do not have the Spirit of God in you or you've grieved the Spirit and is not able to actually empower you to do it. But I love at the very verse, end of verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. See, some Christians feel very burdened by the commandments of God, yet John says very clearly... Insist they're not burdensome. These, the things what God's called you to do is not burdensome. It's not a weight. When we see how wise and how good the commandments, the word of God is, it's a gift for you and I how to live this life that is good. It's a gift from God to show us the best and most fulfilling life possible you can have on this earth. He's given it to you and I. He says, here. You didn't have a life. You lived in darkness. Now you're in the light. I hear. I'm giving you the, just live it. Trust me. Live this. Do it. I empower you to do it. Do it. And you will have a life that's fulfilling. See, God's commands is like a handbook. A handbook for life. He's handing it to you and I. And he tells us what to do because he knows how we work best. Why? Because he created you. God's commands are not given to bind us or to break us or to give us to pain. 
He's not some irritating old man looking down upon you. Just want to make my life miserable. I just know he does. You just don't know God then with that statement. He doesn't know really what I want. He created you. He knows every thought before you even think it. See, those statements just tell you you're not growing. You're not reading the word. You're not understanding and trusting the word of God and applying it when you make these kinds of statements. And we've all been there, right? I'm speaking from experience here. But because we are born again, we are given new hearts and hearts which are by instinct wish to please God now. Before, you didn't care about God. Right? You didn't even think about much of God. You just, only when you say, oh, please, if there's a God, please don't let the lightning strike me on this one. But you really didn't believe it. But if somehow deep within, you, you've heard that someone else don't say that. No, no, no. If you're born again, you know the heart of God because you're just growing in your love for him and his love will start bringing out to you of, of what he knows is best for your life and whatever has allowed to touch your life, you know that is good from God. Even though you don't understand it and it doesn't quite feel it. But he's given you a new heart, a heart that instinctively wishes to please God as part of this new covenant. The law, God has been written on the heart of every believer, Jeremiah 31, 33 says. Now it's interesting, why does John actually have to bring this to believers in his letter? Because remember, he's dealing with Gnostics. He's dealing with non-believers. He's dealing with all kinds of people who are believers and feeling weak. And should, should I continue to, to walk with God this way? He's dealing with this through this letter. And we've all been there where we have weak moments. Oh, is this Christian life really? So when he compares them, he says, think about what God is asking you to do. The Messiah, he's all he's asking you compared to the religious leaders and all of the things that they added to the do's and don'ts, the hundreds and hundreds of things you had to follow on the law. So he compares them to these religious rulers and, and rules men make up. John is not trying to say obedience is an easy thing. If that was true... It would be easy for us not to sin, wouldn't it? But John already knew and acknowledged in chapter 1, verse 8, that we, are all, we all sin. But John is thinking of the contrast between what Jesus' statements and what he said made between the religious requirements of these religious leaders of his day. And there were such complications. And they were like, even though they didn't want all these rules and regulations, all of a sudden God says, no, love, love me and love others. But, but what about the food deal? Clothes deal, this deal, that deal, only this deal versus a Sabbath deal. All these other things and... and, and Love God and love others. Jesus said all the rules and regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees were as heavy burdens, Matthew 23, 4. John's reminding them that what Jesus said, Jesus said himself, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. 30. 
Instead of the burdensome requirements to keep hundreds of little rules and regulations, Jesus simply says, love me and love my people and you will walk in obedience. If you don't love him, if you're really not focused upon him and other people, you won't walk in obedience is what he's telling us. When we really love God, when we really love God, we will want to obey him and please him in every aspect of our lives. That's simple. Now what's that, how do you have victory? When you're born of God, how do you have this victory? He tells us in verses 4 and 5 here. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You can overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. How do you have overcome the world? Our faith. How do you overcome the things and struggles you have? By faith. Who is he who overcome the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? By faith do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Internalize that. Are you, are you saying yes? Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes and amen. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. If you're saying, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, nah, I, no, no, this is all new to me. You need to give your life to Jesus. If not, continue. Listen. Because if we are Born of God. He said we will overcome the world. John begins with a principle that is so simple yet so powerful. If you're born again, you can overcome the world. You can have victory over the things that have struggled you, struggled with your whole life. The idea that anything born of God could be defeated by this world was strange to John. You think as being a born-again believer that there's something in this world is more powerful than the God who saves you and protects you and guides you? That's strange thinking that way. How can you even think that way? That's what he's saying. And it should be strange to us. That's why he says this victory that has overcome the world is our faith, the faith that God has given us, and faith is in him and him alone for salvation. Our faith and faith in him alone gives us eternal life. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. His is who we're talking about. We're not relying upon anybody else. We're relying upon God himself. And since we believe on him is the key to being born again, chapter 5, chapter, chapter five verse 1, the key to victory is faith. Not only come to the altar and get saved kind of faith, that's not what I'm talking about, but a consistently abiding faith in him and him alone. An ongoing reliance and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work. That is what I'm talking about. How do we overcome temptations? 
How do you overcome seductions? How do you overcome attractions of this world? It's not by some program or programs, but through a person, Jesus Christ. In the world, you will have tribulation, the Bible says. Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. And John repeats the thought of with these words when he says, Who is he who overcome the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The life of abiding life in him. Grafted. Connected. A faith and trust in Jesus Christ is the life that overcomes the pressures and the anxieties and the temptations of this world. There is no other way. Who overcome primarily because of who we are in Christ. You have victories because of who is in your life. Not what we do, but who is in our life. That is a difference. Do never, ever, ever say, I am saved because I go to Calvary Chapel. That's what we do. I, get, I got saved because I do this for God, and I do this for God. I'm in this ministry, and I've done this, and I, my family was in a Christian family. That's what we do. That is not what saves you. question is, is, is Jesus Christ living in you? Do you put your trust in who the person is? The word faith or belief does not merely mean to believe, but to trust and to be confined in, to commit to and trust. The very core of the meaning of faith is confidence in and reliance upon. Look at any Greek lexicon. It tells you the same ver the definition. Many people, religious program seekers is what I call it. Pastor, they come to me. And, and, and I'm very patient because I, that's many churches raised in this way. And, and I understand that. So this is not condemnation. I'm just telling you. If you're one of those religious program seekers and you're looking here at this church for programs, you're not going to find them. Because many people will come and ask me, what type of programs do you have for discipleship? What program do you have for new believers? What program do you have for keeping accountability and making sure people are following Jesus in this fellowship? And I will give you the same answer I have always given you. My answer is always the same. Jesus Christ. That is how I have the assurance. The one who overcome the world. The one who who dealt with every temptation successfully, the one who stared down the enemy, the one who the Spirit of Christ lives in every believer and gives him victory and her victory over all things. That is the one that I point everyone to and continue to encourage you to follow and nothing else. We have wonderful ladies' fellowship, wonderful men's fellowship, and children's program. All the things to teach you the word of God so you can grow in your understanding and knowledge and understanding and your love for who? Not the church. Not this building, I should say. But in Jesus Christ and the people of Christ. That's it.
Because I know if that's what the Bible says and I've applied it and continue to apply it, why would I teach anything different? Why would you go anywhere different if they're not teaching you the one and only who can save you and change your life? Why would you? That's why you're here. (laughs) You're going to continue to hear the word of God. The answer is Jesus. And that's why I love the childlike faith. You can ask, who was it that built the ark? The kids are just, yes, programmed. Use the word, pro. Jesus. Yes, the Savior of the world was involved with Noah too, wasn't he? Who created the, the heavens and the earth? Jesus, yes, he was. Yes, he was. So if a five-year-old can understand that, why can't a 25-year-old or a 55-year-old or a 75-year-old? What hinders them? Darkness? Not knowing Jesus on a personal level. So how is it we can, can overcome these, these, these oh, be an overcomer of this world in Jesus? Well, because Jesus has overcome the world. And as we abide in him, we are overcomers in Jesus, John 16, 33. As we walk with Jesus and grow in that walk, we will overcome our spiritual enemies. Jesus says you have overcome the wicked one, 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We can go on and on and on. Of what the Bible tells us is true. But you've got to do it. You've got to believe it. Now we come to some interesting verses here in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And it's one of the very first things we see in one of the, as I, I referred to in the very beginning, one of those five certainties, Christian certainties. And the first one here is Jesus is God. We see this in verses 6 through 10 here. And we have to understand, and I'll take this through here really quick, but the fact that it says right here in verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood. Who? Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, and because the Spirit is truth. So let's pause right here in verse 6. John makes it clear that Jesus, is he speaks of, is not the Gnostic or phantom Jesus that these non-believers at those days, and even Gnostics today, believe. That Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He's some phantom, some just spirit. But Jesus, who was holy, who came in the flesh, Jesus, we must believe on the one that Jesus, who came with by water and blood, John says here, the, the Jesus who was part of a real material flesh and blood earth. He was real, not a phantom. So John had to combat this false teaching that was coming into the church. He says, wait, 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 wait. Jesus came by water and blood. 
He bears witness here. Because the Spirit is truth. Through the centuries, there have been many different ideas about exactly what John meant by this very complex message or passage of this epistle. And it's very complex in the New Testament as well. But he says probably the best explanation, there's five different explanations of what he means by water and blood. But let me give you what I believe and what the scripture, what I've studied, and you go back and do your own studies on this. But probably the best explanation of he who came by water and blood, through, though there are many, I, I recognize it, but I take it from the oldest record of Christian understanding of this passage that comes from the ancient writings of the Christian Tertullian. I believe what he's referring to is John means the water is Jesus' baptism at the Jordan and the blood is his crucifixion on the cross. That is what he is referring to. Why? When Jesus was baptized, he was not baptized in repentance of his own sin. He had no sin. He never sinned. But because he wanted to completely identify with sinful humanity, when he came by water, it was his way of saying, I am one with you, if you remember that baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Now when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to die because he didn't have the power over him. But he laid down his life to identify with sinful humanity to save us from our sin. So when he came by blood, spewing of his blood on the cross, it was so that he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner on that cross and take the punishment of our sins that we deserved. And this explanation I hold and I stand to and I always have from the very beginning. Why? Because of the teachings and understanding. Because it explains the connection best even when Jesus said in John 3, 5. John 3, 5, write that down. Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The being born of water in this passage speaks of the burial waters of baptism. When you are saved because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, the first act of that changed life, that regenerated life is what? Baptism. Does baptism save you? No. It is a moment of celebration and remembrance of what God has done. Then we come to the cross, the blood. Did you spill your blood? No. Did you take the punishment on the cross? No. Jesus did that. It was his blood that covered the sin of the multitude of sin of the world. But we take communion as a what? Celebration and remembrance of what he has done on the cross of his blood. And so when you see these things, he who came by water and blood, some some taught or still teach that Jesus received the spirit, Christ's spirit at his baptism. Wrong. That is, Christ's spirit left Jesus at the cross. Wrong. It's unthinkable that God could, that anyone would even think about the fact that the complete work is the fact that he was 
100% God, 100% man on that cross. That is what is our, that is our foundation, the testimony, the witness for us. And to think of that is, is, is antichrist. It just completely goes against the scripture. But Jesus did not only come by the water of baptism, but also by the blood of the cross. He was just as much the son of God on the cross as he was when the father declared, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased, Luke 3.22. That happened at the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit also bears witness for you and I to the true person of who Jesus Christ is. Even as Jesus promised he would, he will testify of me, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. We see that in John 15, 26 and John 16, 14. The consistent message is this, my brothers and sisters. The consistent message of the Holy Spirit to you and I here's Jesus. You want your life to change? Here's Jesus. You want that reassurance of instability that you're experiencing? Here's Jesus. Do you know what your future is going to be like? And, and, and the security of that and all the things that are important to you? Here is Jesus to you. If you don't understand today how important that relationship with Jesus is, you're, on sh- shaky, you're, you're having shaking ground, shaky grounds as a believer. You're an emotional roller coaster. What happens when you're on a ro- crazy roller coaster? Eventually you will. Never mind. Don't say it. Get sick to your stomach because you get fed up with yourself. Because the more you think about yourself, the more miserable you'll become. But the more you think about Jesus, the more joy deep within that you'll ever experience. Now we come to the, another controversial or question verse. That's verse 7. If you look at your Bible, you will notice, especially at the New King James Version, there is a footnote at the very beginning that scholars believe this verse was not in the original manuscripts, the original scripture. So we, I don't teach that verse. I, don't, I, I, I recognize it. It's in the New King James Version. Your version probably doesn't have it in there. It may have a footnote to that. Why? Because the fact that there, there was, in all the ancient uh, translations, there was never ever mentioned prior to the 14th century when the Vulgate scriptures came out, when that appeared. It was always a footnote or a side note. It was never seen as being the original uh, scripture of that verse. So when you go through 7, it talks very clearly about the Trinity. But the words they do not believe, and, and again, better scholars than I have studied this over the years, that the words in heaven, from verse 7, and then... Uh, all the way through the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that, be, that bear witness on the earth. These are the, that verse right there is uh, 
in your notes that your scriptures say is not from the original manuscripts. And so again, yes, the Latin Vulgate had it appear, and that's why it got into the New King James Version, but your version may not have it in there at all. So I look at verses 7 and 8, and I, re, I, write, I read it this way. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. That's how I read verses 7 and 8. Now, there are all cons- consistent or constant witnesses telling us who Jesus is. We can know that these three agree as one, as a witness and a testimony. It isn't as if spirit tells us one thing, the water tells us another, and the blood says something completely different. Jesus' life and death and the spirit all tells us who Jesus is, and they tell us in agreement. Just as the Father, just as the Word, just as the Spirit bear witness in heaven, the Trinity is throughout the Scripture, the Spirit and the water and the blood bear witness on earth. How? Look at this. The Spirit bears witness that Jesus Christ is in us. Why? Paul says it in Romans 8, 15 and 16. Paul put it this way, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. How do you know you're saved? Because the spirit of God bears witness in your life saying you are saved. That's why I have complete confidence because the spirit of God confirms it in my life. Does he confirm it in your life? I know I'm a child of God. Do you know I am a child? Can you say I am a child of God? The Spirit also witnesses to us through His Word. As we read God's Word, He speaks to us and teaches us. us. We understand what the Word of God is saying. Prior to being born again, you did not understand the Word of God. And it is truly only a believer who can understand and be taught the Word of God because the Spirit of God lives within you to confirm that. A Christian also is confirmed by the Spirit when? When the Christian feels at home with God's people because the Spirit dwells within them. You cannot help but be around God's people. You feel at home. If any of you traveled before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When we travel, we always look for a church. We go to that church. We know if there's a presence of God because we walk in. Oh, I feel like home. This is, this God, these are God's people. These are my people. These are my people. Yeah, these are it. I feel at home, even though it's a completely strange place. I just have to talk to the people, and it just feels at home. I can take a complete stranger, and I can have a conversation, and the Spirit of God tells me, you're talking to a believer. Why? Because their spirit and my spirit is the same spirit. They talk to each other. I love when those things happen. And I will always call it out, too. Are you a believer? And Jesus Christ, follower of Jesus Christ, are you born again? I'll call it right out because I want, I love when the Spirit confirms and witnesses this. And guess what happens with the believer when I talk, when I say that? It encourages what? Encourages them too. Or it makes them feel very uncomfortable because I need to encourage them to live boldly for Christ because they've been hiding their, their relationship under a basket maybe. 
The light is not shining, but the Spirit still shows. Second, water. Water bears witness that Jesus Christ is in us. When Satan says you're not saved, think back to the day when you went and you were saved. Remember the day of your salvation. Remember the day and you celebrated that by getting water baptism. Remember the remembrance and celebration that your sins were forgiven. And now you are just celebrating it by representing the burial into the water. A burial of all that sin and junk. That whole past life of by faith has been gone. What a wonderful confirmation and wonderful reminder to you and I, we are saved. And thirdly, the blood bears witness that Jesus Christ is in us. I come to the table of communion, and when I drink that cup, it is a wonderful remembrance and celebration of the work of Christ on my behalf and your behalf on that cross. The spirit inside you. The baptism you went through. The blood shed for you work together as one witness, the evidence, the testimony, the proof that you are truly a child of God. Jesus is God. Verse 9. Verse 9 and 10. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Everybody, every day, receives the witness of men regarding various things. You're bombarded by witness of many things. Therefore, we should have as much or have tremendous more confidence in the witness of God when he tells us who Jesus is and what he means to you. John does not want us to believe with a blind faith. Instead, our faith is to be based upon the witness and the testimony that we have, the most reliable testimony possible, and the most reliable witness of God himself. When we believe on Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit as an inner confirmation of our standing before God, Romans 8.16. But when we refuse to believe on this truth and, and live our life and believe on Jesus, we reject the witness and the testimony God has given of his son. And when you reject that, you're therefore calling God a liar with unbelief. Now, no one usually sits there and calls God a liar. You don't really, most people purposeless are really off the wall. And unless you purposely say, oh, God's just a liar. I've never even heard that from the most wretched person. They just say, I don't believe in a God. But either way, you know you're calling God a liar or you don't. The fact is, the Bible says, you are calling God a liar when you do an unbelief. Now, I don't know about you, but that should kind of poke you a little bit. In any form of unbelief, oh, help me with my unbelief. Does that sound familiar? 
Why do I do the things I know I shouldn't be doing? But I don't do the things I know I should be doing. Help me with my unbelief. Does that sound familiar to you? These things all of us deal with. And the last thing I ever want to do is call my Savior a liar. Because he's not. I believe. See, John exposes the great sin of unbelief. That unbelief is a very serious thing. Most everyone who refuses to believe God doesn't intend to call God a liar. But they do it nonetheless. And such rejection of God's witness and testimony over time can lead to a place of no return. It's very dangerous, the Bible says. Where a person is permanently hardened against God like a Pharaoh to a place where they may be one we have referred to in Mark 3, verse 28 and 29, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. What hope can there be for a one who persists in hearing what God says and then calls him a liar as unbelief? I don't believe it. Every time you say, I don't believe it, I reject what you're saying, is hardening your heart. And you can get to a point, if it comes so hard, you're a Pharaoh. There's no return. That was scary to me. God, do I have that so much unbelief? Is my heart that hardened that I can't be saved? Are you going to turn my, my debased mind over to, to live out my life in this darkness? Oh, man, that shook me, shook me really to the core. But that, that, that teaching of that word and hearing those words caused me to finally open my eyes to, I need a Savior. I'm a wicked man and I need a savior. I need to be I need forgiveness. I don't want a hard heart. And that changed my life over 28 years ago. Has it has it done it for you? Has your life changed? <coughs> we are going to see the second foundational, not only are God, Jesus is God, but believers have eternal life. We see that promise here in verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has what? Life. He who does not have the son of God does not have what? Life. I thought I had a life. When I was in my 20s, I created my life, my little utopia. I was going to be a multimillionaire. I was going to do this, and I was going to do that, and I had this, and I had that, and I, had, I was always going to have my strength. I was going to be always competitive, and all my body in good shape, and all that. <laughs> I was such a foolish young man. I didn't have a life. What life is he referring to? Eternal life. I now know I have eternal life and I celebrate it every day. I have that eternal life now and I'm going home to continue it. 
And then I'm going to come back with Jesus on my white horse that he has for me. And I'm coming back with Jesus. Are you? Because it says right here, the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He's offered it to all of us. Did you receive it? Did you receive him? And when you receive him, you receive eternal life. Because the only way you can have eternal life in this life is in his son. It's in the, say, say the name, Jesus Christ. There is no other place to have eternal life. And he who has the Son has this eternal life. See, God's essential message to you and I as man and woman is that eternal life is a gift from God received in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about living for Jesus. It's all about understanding and what all the promises that come from having that relationship with Jesus. It's tragic. Islam. It's tragic. The Watchtower Society. It's tragic for the Mormon country of, in Salt Lake City. Why? Because the fact is Life is in the Son, Jesus Christ, and there is no other place. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you believe and do you receive fact that you have eternal life. In stating their message so plainly here, John hopes to persuade us to believe. Do you believe? Even if we already believe, he wants us to know that you have eternal life. He wants to remind you and encourage you and I that we have eternal life. This is not all there is to life. Many lose hope thinking this, the life they're living right now, is uh, that's all there is, and they commit suicide because they're so down in the darkness of just, of no hope. My brothers and sisters, be lifted up today. You have eternal life because you're saved. Because you're a child of God. You're, this is not your home. You have eternal life. God gave witness to his son. But he has also given witness to his sons, to individual believers of you and me. We know that we have eternal life, no question. Not only is there the witness of the Spirit within us that says so, but there is also the witness of the Word of God that we continue to meditate on, read it, memorize it, repeat it, to remember what God has given us. John's confidence in his letter is so clear and so impressive. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. And we can only know this if our salvation rests in Jesus Christ and not our own performance. 
Because if you are into legalism and, and religiosity, then this is what happens to you almost every day or throughout the week. I was good today. That must be I saved. I really screwed up this weekend. I am not. Oh, please don't come back now, God. Oh, I don't think I'm saved. That is not a life for Christians. If you're born again, you're saved. Now live it like you believe it. Can you say it? Live it like you believe it. You must. Do you have the assurance of eternal life with Jesus Christ as the witness and testimony of your life? And I'll leave you with that question. Father, we thank you. Praise you for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for giving John to write these words down for us so that we have this joy that we can have of eternal life. The joy of assurance of salvation. The joy of the fact that we have been forgiven. Oh, there's just so much to be joyful for in our lives. Each and every day, Lord. Our joy does not get based upon the weather. Yes, our happiness kinds of comes and goes. Right now, we're all happy because we have sunshine today, Lord. We have heat. But in the next week, will we still have that same happiness? No, no. We're talking about the joy of the Lord shall be our strength. Not our circumstances. Not the weather. Not what's going on around the world. But let our strength and our foundation be based upon you and you alone, Jesus Christ, as our author and the finisher of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.